millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today on Truth and Movies, Joaquin Phoenix takes to the mean streets of Gotham City in Joker. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? Rene Zellweger is over the rainbow and over the hill in the biopic Judy. Do you take anything for depression? Four husbands. And in film club, hey, we just want to take another look at Judy. It's A Star Is Born. A new era in motion picture achievement is also born. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host chair, sitting across this week from associate editor of Little White Lies, Hannah Woodhead. Hey. Hannah, welcome back. You've been all around the world since we it's last spoke. It's been a hot minute, hasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, last time I was here was for the uh, Joanna Hogg podcast. That was like oh. six episodes ago. So. Yeah, and you've yeah, seen 30-odd films at the Toronto have, Film Festival. Yeah. Been away in Toronto, been away in New York. Had a great couple of weeks, and now I'm back. Slightly ill. Okay. Ready to dive in to London Film Festival. <laughs> exactly. But we also have a new guest this week, Pamela Hutchinson. Welcome, Pamela. Hello. It's so great to have you on the show. I feel thrilled to be dragged into the 21st century like this. <laughs> Please tell us a bit about what you do if the <laughs> listeners haven't uh, read your work before. Well, I have written for Little White Lies. Um, I'm a freelance uh, writer and film critic, but I'm a bit of a film historian as well. Mm-hmm. So often found talking more about silent cinema and musicals than the new releases. But like <laughs> Hannah, I just got back from a film festival, so I feel ready to take this on I've been in San Sebastian well, that's a sunny film festival it's, isn't it it's a very sunny film festival and now we have the rainy London film festival yeah which is also a great thing which I'll be ignoring to go to a silent film festival <laughs> where's your next silent film festival this week it's important only it's the world's Ooh. most prestigious silent film festival oh, that sounds yeah. lovely I think you've got the right idea escaping the uh, <laughs> the gloom of London but before <laughs> we do we have to tackle the discourse of new oh, releases God, yeah. discourse exactly Harley up first we have of the film everyone seems to be talking about right now. It is Joker. Joaquin Phoenix joins the ranks alongside Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger and Jared Leto as he tackles the role of Batman's arch-nemesis, the Joker. But this take on the character isn't quite what you'd expect. No, director Todd Phillips has crafted a standalone origin story that cribs heavily from the work of Martin Scorsese as Arthur Fleck, a wannabe stand-up comedian, slowly slips towards violent villainy against the backdrop of the bankrupt, rat-strewn, urban nightmare of Gotham City. My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose. To bring laughter and joy to the world. 
it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? So that's a clip from the trailer for Joker there. Hannah, this film has been talked about so much since its premiere at Venice. We have David Jenkins' review up on the website. How do we start with Joker, really? Do we have to? I would be quite happy to never, ever speak about this film again. But unfortunately, I think it's going to hang around for a long time. I think we're going to be talking about it until the Oscars. Oh, really? If you had told me at the beginning of this year that the guy who directed The Hangover was going to make the film that won the Golden Lion and was been touted for, like, Oscar glory, I would have been like, yeah, okay." But as the film says, we live in crazy times and uh, that's what's happening. As listeners will know, I'm a comic book person. I like comic book movies. And I was like, "Okay." Like Joaquin Phoenix, like Robert De Niro. <laughs> Who doesn't like Robert De Niro? Um, so I was in in for a penny and for a pound, but then I, I went and saw it in Toronto, having read David's first look out of Venice, and I just... I really did not like this film on, on any level mm-hmm. and have been quite baffled by the rampant praise. There are these big posters with, like, five stars, five stars, five stars. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... What? Like what? I it's. I mean, I understand. You know, people have different opinions and take different things away from films and different strokes for different folks. It would be very boring if we all agreed about things. But sometimes I just sit back and I, I really can't understand something, and that that's Joker for me. So different strokes for different folks, and we have a different Joker here. So <laughs> where should we start? Should folks. we start with Joaquin Phoenix? Maybe he is one of the great actors of his generation. Ooh. I think the run of films he's had over the last ten years, including Her, Inherent Vice, all the way up to You Were Never Really Here, which is a film that I think you could play almost like Wizard of Oz and Dark Side. <laughs> the moon side by side with Joker and they <laughs> yeah. will line up almost perfectly. Well, I, I very much think that Todd Phillips saw that film and took some cues from it, mm-hmm. as he did from every single Scorsese film. Yeah. There's a great review of the film by David Fear over at Rolling Stone, which calls it Scorsese cosplay, <laughs> which is such a damning but also very accurate uh, way of describing Joker. I think it thinks that it kind of sits alongside those... 70s and 80s classics, mm-hmm. you know, Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, I think is probably the most obvious comparison even has like there are some scenes in Taxi Driver which are pretty much stolen (laughs) and put in Joker there's Mm -hmm. this whole thing about a gun like this guy trying to sign the gun to protect himself and Mm -hmm. on this very podcast I've sung the praises of Joaquin Phoenix especially in You Never Really Here but I don't think this film really gives him a lot to do I think it's very one note I don't think it pushes him anywhere as an actor the whole story around it is oh we lost all that weight we walked out of some interviews and I'm like "Mm, that's not really anything that Christian Bale hasn't done before (laughs) (laughs) which you know and I think that Joaquin Phoenix is probably a better actor than Christian Bale so I think that he could have done something really interesting with this part but the script does not give him anything interesting to do Pamela, you're shaking your head at various points during the kind of spiel there. Are you agreeing? I'm, I'm shaking my head and agreeing quite hard. Um, anything I say about this film is going to sound like praise after your approach to it. <laughs> Obviously, I think that Joaquin Phoenix is working really hard in this film. And as you say, the script doesn't give him much to do. But we keep falling back on this very tired idea of he's got face paint on. He's got mm. the, So, you know, whatever he's doing to act is sort of overwhelmed by the face paint in this terrible idea of irony that the film has which is a complete misunderstanding um, 
unlike you, I'm not a fan of comic books or comic book films, but I watch them all, and I particularly <laughs> watch Batman films. Oh, my expectations for this film were very high. I love an origin story, because mm. I find superheroes quite boring, and I thought that this is a nifty idea, and then I realised it was made by Todd Phillips, and I had to <laughs> temper my excitement. <laughs> Having watched, you know, The Hangover, etc., he's quite a tasteless director and I know that we often castigate films for being too tasteful I do that but the lapses in taste in this film seem to me to go alongside with the lapses in competence every time he sort of strives to be compared to Scorsese or even Chaplin he fails Mm -hmm. and the film leaves you with this hollow sense that we have raised an interesting idea the idea that Joker could come from kind of urban malaise and alienation and not really tackled it well I'm afraid Hmm. <laughs> I think that's what, for me, this film really lacks, is that final resounding point or grander theme. Hmm. It is very nifty, as you say, Pamela, I like that word, <laughs> not one uttered very often on this podcast, that to look at this character, this world, through a different stylistic lens. I don't think that Todd Phillips really has the panache of Scorsese. There are a few shots here. You mentioned taxi driver type sequences. There's a, a patented Martin Scorsese tracking shot almost mm. lifted out of Raging Bull when Arthur goes up to do some stand-up but it's almost half cocked really it's not really the showcase that Scorsese can make those sequences be and I think that Scorsese as well fundamentally with all his films there is a kind of knowledge of you know in Taxi Driver he's like critiquing the, the idea of this you know lone deranged um, what, what's his name uh, Hinckley Oh yeah, uh, the one who's obsessed with mm-hmm. Jodie Foster, which kind of came from that film, and um, it's fascinating to me that Todd Phillips could miss the point. So, so oh, he obviously loves Scorsese, mm-hmm. but he doesn't seem to understand Scorsese films. Mm-hmm. There are some cases where you hear a director talk about their work, and you, you gain a new understanding for it, and you, you're like, "Wow!" Even though I didn't like the film, I appreciate what you have to say about it. Whereas Todd Phillips, every time he opens his mouth about this film, I hate it even more. And recently he's been on a crusade about, well, you know, comedy nowadays, you just can't say things, can you? Because you're going to offend someone. And I really hate that idea that comedy is dead and comedy is now, you, you know, you're being censored because you can't offend people. I'm just, no, that's not happening. I think there's been a movement, which I agree with, towards trying to be kinder and trying to acknowledge that the things that... We, comedians and film directors and actors got away with in the past don't match up to the kind of society we live in now. Society is a very big, empty concept in this film. I'm not one of those um, people that thinks, you know, this film is going to radicalise teenagers to go out and try stand-up comedy. I mangle Bob Munkhouse (laughs) which is one of the film's worst crimes. Uh, Exactly. I don't get away with that. I do think, the other thing that kind of baffles me about this film, and it's something that has been a big talking point around it, is, uh, so Robbie Collin, our our friend here at Little Lies, did an interview with Joaquin Phoenix and Todd Phillips, where (laughs) he raised the question that the film might incite people towards violence, and Joaquin Phoenix got very offended and walked out of this interview, which Joaquin Phoenix does quite a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. So it yeah. wasn't really that unusual. But yeah. the idea to me that Warner Brothers and Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix, who have been making this film for quite a while now, mm-hmm. didn't think about that is inconceivable to me. There is absolutely no way they have spent millions and millions of dollars on this film and not known what potentially could happen. And the, the fact they didn't consult any of the victims or the families of the Aurora shooting 
really speaks to me that they just they're not interested in having a proper conversation mm. they're interested in making money i think it's a irresponsible and b just kind of incredibly distasteful to make a film like this and then be like oh well it's just a movie it's like mm-hmm. no, nothing's ever just a movie really like this film is about the idea that people will take one small bit of information <laughs> and turn it into a mass movement. I mean, that's what it's about. So mm. to be irresponsible on that count is really unforgivable and also utterly bizarre. It's very strange in the film that the news story of what Joaquin Phoenix's character does becomes a mass movement and people mm-hmm. immediately put a reading on the motive for what he did. I don't know how much we're meant to avoid spoilers, but he does something bad on the mm-hmm. subway. Someone sings time to him and he overreacts <laughs> <laughs> quite extremely and so the, the tabloids sort of assume that he is on some kind of socialist crusade and, and this is again this is the modern times thing that he's mm. stealing but th- the fact is that the film is about the idea that people will misinterpret things and take it to heart and I think that as you said responsibility and you're talking about taste as well and comedy there's a scene in this film also where we have a very tense and violent scene or it's meant to be quite tense um, it is very violent and we end with a joke about a person of short stature a really weak Mm. joke a really cheap joke and you think is this your reaction to just throw your hands up and make an old joke because Mm. actually the film raises all these wonderfully interesting concepts about what is funny and what is acceptable and how people interpret things the laughter in my press screening was very interesting I have to say because you saw this at San Sebastian I did so I saw it in a festival um, press screening so it was you know full of um, press and industry people there were pockets of laughter there's a joke about a gun being used near children and people laughed in a very guilty way towards the end of the film our hero confesses something and it's not funny it's not funny he does it in a public place and uh, the chap next to me laughed very loud for about 45 seconds it was incredibly disturbing and that's what the film is making you do it's making you think what is funny and what isn't because of course this is just a film but (laughs) the fact that he was the only person laughing and he laughed in a way that was a little bit guilty sounding and we were all scared at that moment Mm. I have to say shows that the film is just to me it's dicing with things that it can't really resolve on its own Mm. an interesting film and we will talk about it Mm-hmm. Whether it goes up for Oscars or not. Yeah. <laughs> Which can't escape Scorsese almost. That feels like a Cape Fear yes. <laughs> moment with Max Cady laughing at inappropriate yeah. moments. But even just looking at it just as a film, its worldview is so deeply cynical. And even though it may try to show how a landscape, an urban landscape, may create uh, mm. outsized personalities and try to move away from whatever... I'm doing scare quotes here, your comic book movie style is, it really can't approach anything like an intelligent political thematic point. It still relies, at the end of the day, on many of the grand metaphors that other comic book movies play with. It makes me respect everything that the Marvel Cinematic Universe does more, because they manage to see what their vibe and tone and point is and hammer that home time and again. It made me actually respect Christopher Nolan's films more. Mm. Um, I'm much more of a Tim Burton Batman film (laughs) fan than a Christopher Nolan Batman film fan, but Christopher Nolan's worldview, problematic as it could be in The Dark Knight and Beyond, at least is wrestling with 
real world values and real world issues in the way that this isn't. This has this cloak of nostalgia, uh, sort of stylistic pastiche. It's picking up a lot of 70s and 80s urban fables and fairy tales from, from New York. So like the Summer of Sam, the mm-hmm. subway shootings. Uh, Christine Chubbuck has almost a little bit of yeah. that there. Uh, a threat of that. The network comes up as, as a yeah. stylistic touch point as well. But it doesn't manage to corral that into a greater message oh, or a greater point. I don't think the film is saying anything. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to as Todd Phillips has said was his was his intention here you're going to sneak in this like social realist commentary under the guise of a superhero movie then your social realist commentary like better be good yeah. because mm-hmm. he he th- there's this sense in in all the press that Todd Phillips has done about this film that he really doesn't have any respect for superhero movies and doesn't mm-hmm. see them as like a kind of legitimate form mm-hmm. of art I think they are, regardless of whether or not you like them. There's clearly something there for them mm-hmm. to be as many of them and to make as much money as they do. Whereas he just sees it as kind of like a, a means to an end. But then his argument, well, there isn't one. You know, there isn't a, an argument in this film. It's just a, a, things happen and that's it. Like, it's... I, 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 One of the questions that, as film critics, we always ask ourselves when we watch a film is, what is the film doing? Mm. And is it doing it well? And the answer is... I don't know what it's doing. I, I, I have no idea what he's trying to say with this film. And is it doing it well? Well, I mean, if you steal from Scorsese, then I guess, but like also no, because if you haven't ever seen a Scorsese film, maybe you'll be like, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. But if you are someone who's kind of grown up watching these movies, then you kind of see through it straight away and it just becomes this very empty idea of what a nuanced thoughtful film would be but not an actual not anything actually like there and on that point it's completely undermined by the fact that 2019 has been the year where the old style of films have done well and we've we've Mm. just had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Ad Astra we have The Irishman out in a couple of weeks they're films like they used to make that are coming out with big rollouts and being at Toronto and watching films that are coming out in the next couple of months. I was very excited and thinking, like, mm-hmm. Uncut Gems by the Safdie Brothers is a real, like, old Cassavetti style, like, mm-hmm. New York film. And this film, Joker, I think, wants to wants to be a big, you know, old style, gritty New York movie, but it lacks the kind of self awareness for a start. <laughs> it's just like throwing things at a wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like it's it's set in the wrong part of New York. I mean, one of mm. the one of the things that happens in all the Batman films that I quite like is that the villains are more interesting than Batman. Batman's just a rich man, right? In this film, you think, great, we'll focus on the villain for once, and it makes Bruce Wayne a lot more interesting, doesn't it? (laughs) Even though we do end up in the same place we think we're going to end up... Yeah, we suddenly discovered that the real story's happening in Wayne Mansions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe (laughs) someone, perhaps not Todd Phillips, should have made a story about that. The story that we ignore in Joker, mm-hmm. the story about his mother. Well, that's another way that Todd Phillips has undermined his own film. Maybe that, that's part <laughs> of the bargain he's had to strike with Warner Brothers. This is still a film in the DC universe. Well, that's, that's what got me. It's not it's, standalone. It's, it's him saying, I've made this superhero movie, but it's not really a superhero movie. <laughs> but yet, Thomas, Bruce, Martha Wayne, all still there. We get another rehashing of the iconic scene oh. from Batman. Which mm-hmm. How many times oh, have we been how in How many alley? times? How many times, Pamela? How many times? More, See, I mean, more. I, I know it's not going to stop. We know yeah. it's not going to stop. But I think about the most interesting films that feature the Joker and uh, media that features the Joker. Mm-hmm. So for me, some of the most interesting work on the Joker was in the video games, mm. um, the Arkham video games, mm. which I think are, are really, really good. And if you haven't played them, 
you should go out and do that because Mark Hamill plays the voices the Joker and he is fantastic. Yeah. He is. He did. I'm pretty sure he did like TV work. He did the animated well. series Joker, yeah. but then his video game work it's much darker. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I and I, I would be very surprised if that wasn't kind of a reference for this as well because I Completely. think those games have a very like a very strong story, a very like rich and interesting on the idea of the Joker and the relationship the Joker has to the Batman. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, this is just a film about the Joker, but I think on a basic level, it kind of misses all the stuff that makes Joker interesting and tries to turn him into this this hollow character whose thing is, I'm sad. <laughs> like that, that He's a sad clown. Like, that's the film. One thing that some critics have been pulling out from this film is potentially its portrayal of mental illness because that's something yeah. that really ha- is really hammered home in a lot of its trailers and the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it succeeds at all with that aspect of the character? It introduces this neurological <laughs> condition he has where he uncontrollably laughs. laughs. Yeah, you, you uncontrollably laugh. It's <laughs> so of a stupid. Man being Ill. It's so stupid. And also I think as well we've talked about how cynical this film is. No one, apart from Zazie Beetz's character, who we haven't really spoken about because she barely exists in the film, there are no, like, good people in this film, apart from her and his mother, but she's ripped from you and never really here 100%, like, the relationship between Joker and Mm -hmm. his mother. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I reject the idea of a society being that cynical and people being that unwilling to kind of find any common ground there's a bit where he's on the bus and he's like pulling faces at this kid and the kid's laughing and the mother's like how dare you bother my child (laughs) and I was like I just don't I don't know I I really maybe I'm too optimistic I can't see a society like this ever coming to fruition I can't believe in a (laughs) in a world that dark (laughs) even in films like Watchmen and even in the Batman comics which are very dark there's still moments of kind of like the milk of human kindness coming mm. through occasionally and you kind of need that you can't I don't think you can just be relentlessly like ah everything is terrible people are horrible uh, I just don't think it's for me it doesn't work you're that's such a, a personal lovely thing. person <laughs> <laughs> even in You Were Never Really Here which I think yeah. again is a film there's about innocence. horrible people doing horrible things that yeah there's innocence and light and you see that coming through whereas this is just Relentless darkness and I, a Gary Glitter musical oh, moment, which I, well, I think points yeah. to the kind of that is why. Surely, sure. I mean, I mean, I can believe in a world where people <laughs> are wary of strangers approaching their children, and, well, I can, yeah. and I can believe in a world where government cuts mean that people don't get their mm. medicine. Sadly, yeah. But, whether it works dramatically is what I'd be more interested in and and there is an element of of course he's going to become a psychopath and of course everyone else is going to follow him because everything is awful Uh, you asked earlier about the mental health side of things in this film and I I do think as someone who's like I'm quite open about my mental health and like my struggles with mental health and mental illness I do think it's really like implying that if you have a mental illness and you uh, don't have access to services you're immediately going to go on a rampage it's incredibly like othering and unhelpful and it's been proven time and time again that people with mental illness are far more likely to hurt themselves before they hurt anyone else I do think as well as, as Pam has just said there's some interesting stuff about like what government cuts do mm-hmm. to a, a, a society I can't stop like laughing when I say the word see this is what the film does <laughs> you're now laughing at society's ills and that's because of George Phillips has taught you <laughs> but again like I don't think it engages enough with these uh, these ideas and there are interesting films that I'm sure will be made about how the breakdown of 
uh, society through kind of government cuts and you know government self-interests will leads to radicalization i think that's something that maybe chris morris or amanda inucci would be better suited to uh mm. dealing with because clearly todd phillips doesn't understand the world that he's created here. I feel it's a misreading of Scorsese. Scorsese's yeah, um, urban blight films at least always had a religious framework of this is a fallen society, fallen yes. from grace. Yes. Whereas Todd Phillips doesn't have that. And here. his films are photographed so beautifully, whereas this mm-hmm. has just been put through a lot of heavy filters. I found it quite <laughs> oppressive watching these colours. It's not it's not pleasing to the eye. There's no texture there. It's just a lot of red and yellow that's light. The, that's the thing. I think people have said that this film is visually stunning. And I'm like, well, no. One of the heavy critiques I've seen about superhero movies in general is that they're very grey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this movie, I do think there is colour and that they've tried to make it look interesting. <clears throat> I think people have just become so kind of used to superhero movies that are flat. Mm-hmm. They see something garish like the Joker and they're like, well, this is wonderful. This is beautifully shot. And I'm like, no, no, you've been tricked. We have to be wary. <laughs> I think talking about this film, I'm not suggesting you're doing this at all, but we're patronising people. We're patronising people <laughs> who like superheroes. Gosh, you'll think this is clever. And, <laughs> and the more worrying thing is the conversation, which I am not equipped to answer, is whether we're patronising people by suggesting that it might radicalise them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because I do think and I did actually have a moment of relief partway through the film he is a villain and they do admit that he is yeah. a bad person you know growing up I always knew the Joker was the baddie <laughs> and that does seem to be the case still so hopefully people won't actually follow that but the film takes us down to this level perhaps where we are a bit us and them about people which is yeah. always a bad it, 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 it paints the, the people of Gotham as a mob yeah. um, which is yeah. a, a trap that many of the other Batman filmmakers yeah. fall into as well it's one thing that Christopher Nolan did and when you don't have the almost the moral centre or mm. at least some sort of uh, temperature mm. gauge somewhere you, you, you do fall into that trap and I, I wouldn't say that I don't feel like I'm patronising people who may feel this is clever because they're, mm. they're used to comic book movies I want to talk to Lucretia Martel who is an incredibly intelligent filmmaker who would give this the golden lion what does yeah. she see in this that she you know, she's on record saying she doesn't like superhero movies the whole conversation around you know will this film radicalise people is one that we have constantly about violent films and we had a couple of months ago about The Hunt the uh, Craig Zobel film which was banned because they were worried about it inciting violence which I think is ridiculous like no one was going to go and see a Craig Zobel film anyway the guy makes indie films that are, are very good and I like Craig Zobel but they're not a film like Joker they don't have the scope like this is going to be everywhere people are going to be seeing this for months at cinema so for a start it seems weird to me that that is a film that gets banned but this is a film that wins The Golden Lion <laughs> whereas I think if there's a conversation to be had, it's around, well, okay, why do we deem the violence acceptable in a, in a comic book movie compared to in a film like mm. The Hunt? Mm-hmm. We should really deliver the final punchline, shouldn't we, and put our scores <laughs> on this. We've been talking for quite a while on Joker. Hannah, I'll come to you first in anticipation, enjoyment, if you can put it that way, and in retrospect. <laughs> it's like a four in anticipation. I was, I was excited to see it because, again, coming out of Venice... David hated it, but Christina Newland, whose opinion I very much respect, she really liked it. Uh, Robbie Collin was very positive. Mm-hmm. So I was very much like, I don't know where I'm going to fall on this. But then <laughs> enjoyment, probably a two. I have enjoyed talking about it with people. Mm-hmm. I, I, that I do enjoy. But then in retrospect, it's a one. There's no need for a film like this. There's just no need. You know, there's no nothing. <laughs> Next. That's it. I'm done with the Joker now. (laughs) (laughs) Joke's over. (laughs) (laughs) Pamela, what would you give this film? 
Uh, so anticipation, I think for the reasons I said, um, you know, what a great idea. About three. Mm-hmm. Love and origin. Uh, <laughs> while I was watching it, I might have gone for like a two and a half in enjoyment because I did have that wave of relief. I was like, oh, it's just a fairly average Batman movie. Mm-hmm. I like them. And <laughs> it's diminishing with every step and every time I look at Hannah's face. Um, so <laughs> Because she's so angry and she's such a nice lady. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a two. I'm going to give it a two. I thought it'd be kind. <laughs> of course, yeah. I, I think I... I'm a big comic book fan and comic book movie fan and I've waited so long for someone to take one of these characters and put it through a different sausage making process. So having Joaquin Phoenix having this kaleidoscope of influences on this film I was very excited. So five in anticipation and for all the reasons we've gone over it just didn't really work for me. I will single out the Joker costume which is by the costume designer from the Phantom Thread. So it it is gorgeous. That's one thing that does look literally stunning. His final suit Hmm. Um, uh, I, I do think that is worthy of being up there with with all the other Joker costumes we've seen on screen. But yeah, two enjoyment, probably two in retrospect. There's uh, not really much there for me. But as we've said, <laughs> it has worked for many other people. There are many other opinions out there. And listeners, if you do see this film, please do tweet us. Let us know what you think at the don't, usual channels. Don't like angry tweet me though. Like you can, angry tweet, you can angry I mean, tweet I'm, all of us. I'm fascinated yeah. to like hear pe- hear like have interesting conversations about this film for sure. But the rampant sexism and racism that I have seen directed at critics of color and women, particularly who've had the gall to criticize this film, is disgusting. And close friends of mine who have written not even like necessarily like scathing reviews just kind of not totally positive reviews have faced like you know death threats Mm -hmm. over over a comic book film basically and I just think you know if you want to engage about this film and and you know have a rational sensible conversation that that's fantastic but maybe take a step back <laughs> you know and be aware that at this point it seems like it's mandatory for every critic to have written something or podcasted on this film I mean even I'm here <laughs> but you know I mean the the rash of pieces there are so many pieces yeah there are yeah. so and there's some amazing writing yeah. on this from both sides so mm-hmm. I definitely yeah. think like if you you know by all means go away and make your own opinions that's definitely what this podcast is people seem to think we're telling people what to do and what to like but no I mean it's much more about opening the conversation exactly. up exactly so. who would have thought that this year's Green Book would be Joker. God. The film that people just keep talking if it gets about best for months. Picture, what are we going to do? Uh, had to retire, I think. <laughs> but anyway, listeners, if you do see Joker this weekend, let us know. The usual channels are at Truth and Movies at Twi- on Twitter, Truth and Movies at TCOLondon.com via email, and of course, there's the comments section at slash podcast. But of course, that's not the only new release in <laughs> cinemas this weekend. We have actually the cover film for this issue of Little White Lies, Judy. In winter 1968, 30 years after she's shot to global stardom in The Wizard of Oz, showbiz legend Judy Garland arrives in swinging London to perform a sellout run at the talk of the town. And yet Judy is fragile. After working for 45 of her 47 years, she is exhausted and haunted by memories of a childhood lost to Hollywood. Will she have the strength to go on? Let's hear a clip. Somewhere you need to take better care of yourself. You understand? Over the rainbow. Everybody has their troubles. And I've had mine. I just want what everybody wants. I seem to have a harder time getting it. Do you take anything for depression? Four husbands. Didn't work. There's a land 
A clip from Judy there. So, Pamela, there's this obsession, isn't there, with the British film industry with old Hollywood stars coming to the UK in their dotage. So we had Stan and Ollie last year. We had film stars don't die in Liverpool. You could also probably throw in my week with Marilyn yeah. and me and Orson Welles in that genre. It, does Judy fit in that, or is it more than that, or less than that? I think it fits into that genre mm-hmm. because I think they're all quite marvellous films actually <laughs> I really liked um, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool particularly mm-hmm. um, Gloria Graham's a real favourite of mine I think Annette Benning and Jamie Bell are wonderful in that film this film I didn't necessarily have the highest expectations for because one's always wary when someone's going to do an impersonation but I think that it lives by Renee Zellweger's uncanny performance as mm. Judy Garland and the tone of melancholy that those other films achieve is here too and um, I wasn't on board for the beginning of the film we, it begins one of the good things about the film is it, it has these flashbacks to Judy Garland's child star career and it starts with a very leaden one in which Louis B. Mayer outlines her choices either suck it up and be a star or become a nobody and he explains himself in such length that I thought yeah even a drug addled teenager will get this and was a the film came alive for me the moment when Judy Garland has to say goodbye to her children and not only is that very poignant but also we get to see a little bit of Judy Garland comedy Mm. and it's very sweet the way that she invents a little fantasy for her children to make things better and that to me is the sort of essence of Judy Garland's charm that sort of out-of-age, childlike quality, the sort of fragile fantasy that she often portrayed of happiness. That voice is so rich and powerful that when she's singing about getting happy, you always suspect she's having to tell herself that. And this is what that film does. It really talks about how to project and carry on when everything looks terribly, terribly bleak. (laughs) And does it capture something about Judy Garland that maybe golden age Hollywood experts like yourself may know uh, but for the, the great unwashed like like myself Well I made sure know. I didn't wash before I came to the studio today. Um, I'm not sure if I'm an expert but I have to say that there are historical inaccuracies in this film that some people are very worried about. The children are too young they would have been teenagers and uh, as teenagers they still need what the film says they need. They need an education and a stable home but of course Lorna Luft looks so plaintive in a pinafore and it obviously works very well dramatically uh, I don't think she met Mickey Deans under such innocent circumstances rather sordid ones in fact um, but you know all this kind of thing I think is irrelevant because the film not only captures the quality of Judy Garland but it makes a very important argument it has a very clear thesis which these films don't always need to have you know that she was effectively abused by the system at MGM by the the regime that Louis B. Mayer put her on and you see heartbreakingly the after effects and this woman who's only in her 40s who looks much older um, she's on the drugs she's on the drinking and she is not eating and it's I mean one of the most moving scenes in the film I think is when she's finally persuaded to take a fork full of cake I honestly it's it's one of the points where my eyes started leaking particularly strongly so I forgive the film for being slightly inaccurate with timelines and so on because I think it is not just reaching for an essence of her star quality but also making an a point about Hollywood and about how we treat child stars, uh, which we still need to learn. Unfortunately, there's you know it's still 
an ongoing problem. Mm. Hannah, did Judy work for you on, on these levels or different levels? I don't know. I mean, as someone who I'm not overly familiar with Judy mm. Garland's work, apart from, you know, sort of The Wizard of Oz and the big, like, classics that we would watch at school on, like, a mm-hmm. rainy day, you know, that sort of thing. Great school you went to. <laughs> yeah, I remember watching Wizard of Oz at school. And we, do, we, we had music classes, so we would uh-huh. sing, like, the songs, which was very sweet, very wholesome, <laughs> very, like, country school uh-huh. antics. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't really have any interest in this, actually, before David Jenkins went and saw it and came back full of praise. Yeah. He really has connected this film in a way that I could not have anticipated and I think mm-hmm. he didn't anticipate it either. Uh, I definitely recommend that people read his really lovely review on the website yeah. and in the magazine because he talks a lot about Rene Zellweger's performance mm-hmm. and he just, yeah, I think that David articulates a lot of what is really wonderful about this film and also it made me enjoy the film more seeing mm-hmm. kind of this really beautiful piece about it as well I don't want to promote Little White Lies too much though that is my job but also uh, Guy Lodge did an interview with René Zellweger (laughs) which is in the magazine and really really beautifully illustrated but um, the interview is so it feels very like personal and honest without being intrusive but also Guy's writing is just so Mm -hmm. wonderful in it and really like his appreciation for uh, René as uh, as a actress and kind of as what she's been through because she's you know been through the ringer as they say really sort of it's just a lovely read I Mm -hmm, highly recommend mm -hmm. but um yeah as myself I, I went and saw this when I knew we were doing the issue about it and um I still like I'm not really one of those people who likes that genre of uh Hollywood stars come to England at the end of their career <laughs> films. I really did not like Stan and Holly. I really did not like that film at all. But this, I think, it has so much charm. And as Pamela said, like a lot of that comes from Renee Zellweger's amazing performance. But it's just so tender and reverential without being saccharine. And there's this wonderful scene, which I think I will remember until the end of my dying days, where uh, Judy meets some fans of hers, oh. a, a, a gay couple who... Also not real people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh. I, I feel like totally, I should mention this because yeah. some people are angry. They really need to be angry. <laughs> I love the experts' commentary we have here. It's, again. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those scenes where you totally know it's fabricated. So yeah. she goes back to their house and, oh. she, and they make an omelette and she's like bitching with one of them about the how bad the omelette is well not bitching but like kind of like riffing about how bad this omelette is and it's just really like I think it speaks a lot to A the kind of person that the real Judy Garland was but also like why people loved her so much you know yeah. and the gay fan base that's what they are yeah. gay but that's the important thing and she always said you know that was hugely important to her and it's been hugely important in maintaining her memory as well and they have a very earnest conversation about the obscenity act which is actually really seems to work in that scene yeah Yeah. luckily you know gay people and drag culture has kept these stars alive for us in a way that sometimes films about classic Hollywood stars can be Mm. quite cruel yeah yeah mommy dearest (laughs) (laughs) yeah very good but yes very cruel yeah (laughs) whereas you know this film is made with a lot of love and affection and I think that that is important when you're looking at someone who in this particular story is so vulnerable. It did surprise me kind of how much I got out of it. I think if we're talking, we've just spent ages talking about Joker and its portrayal of Mm. mental health, but I think this film kind of handles that so much better and shows the ramifications of abuse and how, you know, it it stays with you Mm. and it affects you in ways that you could have never anticipated. Mm -hmm. And it really does give you a sense for the tragedy that was her life without it being overly sort of like oh look how bad she had it you know it's very much like she still got out there she still did it you know and sometimes when you 
have been through the ringer and you still have to get out there and do it and there's this amazing scene where quite early on in the film when she gets to talk of the town and <laughs> Jessie Buckley's trying to convince her to go on stage and she's like a mess and um, you know the second she gets up on that stage and it's just like wow mm. not only are we watching an amazing actress do an amazing job but you're kind of it feels like you know you're right there in the room you're, you're seeing the magic that everyone went there to see a musical film or a film with music in often like to have these moments when suddenly she performs and the room goes <laughs> silent and it's the bit where you appreciate the talent but what I think is really good about that sequence particularly is that there's a real tension because before she goes on stage before she's even got corralled by Jessie Buckley and dragged there and you know, like poured into a dress and dragged on stage she's been sort of opening her mouth and, and caressing her throat and this croak comes out and you think maybe she can't actually sing anymore because she's such a wreck physically but when she comes out and she sings it's such a joyous moment and a release of that tension and you do think maybe everything will be alright we could talk for hours and hours about Renee Zellweger's mm. performance um, she <laughs> sings really well and one of the things that's interesting is that she sings and she doesn't sing spoiler she doesn't sing as well as Judy Garland right well. uh, <laughs> you know she doesn't have that richness and that depth in her voice but in a way that almost works because there's a sense that, you know, these Talk of the Town shows were a bit of a pale imitation or some kind of imitation of Judy Garland's best years. I'd heard of them before as this real joke period in her life where she was oh. such a mess. Oh, you know, look at the sad old star, what I has been. And to see... It made me think of the Damned United where, you know, whatever happens, like, sometimes they win, sometimes they lose, but we're still trying to carry on with the story. Some of her shows go really well and some of them are complete catastrophes. So you have got that knife edge mm -hmm. as well. We need to talk about Renee Zellweger being yeah. a really good actress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm of an age where I remember her massive physical transformation when she had to come to Britain and eat shepherd's pie <laughs> to be Bridget Jones. And, you know, it was considered to be a massive sacrifice. Here she's come to Britain and done the opposite. Her physicality in this film is really painful. She's got a slightly hunched spine and her, her bones are protruding. There's a bit where you can see her wedding ring just falling off her knuckle. And it's mm -hmm. very painful to watch. And yet she's got... Just like she does with all her performances, which always seem to be me to be very careful performances, she's got every little twitch and tick of Judy Garland. She's got this sort of quite heavy, pouting smile, and she's got this sort of firm, clenched jaw, which sort of typifies her kind of trooper attitude. And obviously she doesn't really look like Judy Garland, but she <laughs> looks enough like her that mm. I was really on board with her imitation, her impersonation for the whole film. And... Well, what can I say? Renee Zellweger, I do think she gets overlooked. I mean, she was grand in Chicago mm. and yet was still surprised that she can pull off a musical. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the fascinating aspect. And we might come on to this with A Star is Born, a film that was very much created as a return to form for Judy Garland, who'd been having a tricky time yeah. in the industry for years. This film is almost a perfect stage for Renee Zellweger coming back after her six years away from the screen where everyone was baffled that she'd aged yes. and looked a little different. <laughs> yes. But she was so great in a run of films from the early 2000s to the mid-2000s, you know, Oscars and yeah. so on. And people seem to forget that. And it seems great that this seems to be 
the platform for her to get a bit more of that stardom. Yeah, I mean, just like Joaquin, she has transformed herself and put mm-hmm. on this very intense performance, and this film actually deserves it. It's not the cutting edge of cinema, what we're seeing here, but it's a very, again, I'm using the word careful, but it's one of these films that builds up with meticulous details. You do walk away remembering the scrambled eggs, mm-hmm. and just the sight of people trying to get supper in Soho after midnight in <laughs> the late 1960s, which, you know, clearly was quite embarrassing. Even just the presence of Lonnie Donegan as a rather important character is so charming. Uh, You know, but this film supports her performance entirely and it gives her space. I mean, there could be a lot of indulgence in a performance like this that could be a lot of crying jags in front of the dressing room mirror and so on, but actually it pulls back from a few of those moments. I seem to remember... And this shouldn't be important, but I think I cried three times. And I've spoken to other people, and I think there are three good cries in this movie. <laughs> uh, if, like me, that's something that will entice you to the pictures, then, you know, I mean, I cried far more in Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Perhaps uh-huh. that film's too excessive. Uh, but this film really knows exactly when to hit your emotional points. And I was with her. I say, from the wardrobe on. Once she got into that wardrobe, I was completely committed to Judy and Renee and the real Golden Age Hollywood experts will be angry with me, but I don't care. (laughs) It's absolutely marvellous. So it's a three-cry movie, but what other scores would you give it, Pamela? (laughs) Well... My anticipation swung wildly between the first two trailers. This was a massive point of contention. And the first trailer looked terrible and the second trailer looked amazing. So I'm going to say that my anticipation was four because I knew the songs would be good. My enjoyment level was possibly five because I was so happy. And in retrospect, it is a very, very good four-star film. Oh, terrific. (laughs) Hannah? I think I was at about a three in anticipation Mm. and then a four in enjoyment. I really was surprised about how much I, I enjoyed it. And then a four in retrospect. I, I'm looking forward to seeing this again. You know, it's one of the first films that we've done as a cover film on Little White Lies where my mum has rang me and gone, could you send me a copy of that? <laughs> but it does have that kind of like Christmas, like a glass of sherry like vibe to it. It's very like, even though it is so sad and, you know, you do come away with like this massive feeling of the way that the world really just did not deserve Judy Garland. How many times did you cry, Anna? I only cried once, which is rare for me. Oh. But I cried right at the end when she oh. does the whole, yeah, and, it, and it's really 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 like <laughs> Tana's going to lose it again um, no it's fine it's fine I'm fine I'm very professional <laughs> it's such a sweet film and it really does I think give you a, a new appreciation for Judy Garland if you're someone like me who's a bit of a philistine and hasn't really seen that many mm-hmm. of her films and I do kind of go want to go away and watch all the like classics you do forget like bangers all the songs in that film you're like yeah these are great like forget shallow like it's all about like uh, the trolley song and whatnot i really was wondering what film you were going to pick for film club but i I wondered if it might be taxi driver but then i was just going through a list of jude garland movies and uh there are options (laughs) well that that was a very quick conversation with david he knew exactly what he wanted for film club this week but that's judy longest film yeah (laughs) a very strong recommendation for judy there i do wonder how deep does that well go if we're going to keep doing old stars coming to Britain. I wonder if in 30 years' time there'll be a film made about Antonio Banderas coming to the UK yeah, studying at Central St. Martins. In, um, Sussex. Yep. Oh, that's interesting. Rihanna coming and living in South London. It's just where she lives now. Or what? maybe just make a film of, uh, of Taylor Swift's London Boy. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> or, or Renee Zellweger being here to film Bridget Jones and learning how to eat pies. I mean, oh, it was, I it was such a time in her life. Also, like my friend um, bumped into her yesterday at, oh, uh, at the hotel where she's doing a, doing a, a junket and he's not anyone and he was like oh my god Renee and she was like hello yes I'm Renee like, and, and was like what's your name nice to meet you and and he was like she's just 
absolutely lovely and oh. to you know to just a person on the street none of that like A-list like get out of my way I'm ready as well it's very much like oh yeah hi I can't imagine Joaquin Phoenix doing that no Maybe. I think he would be He'd appalled just walk if you out. tried yep. to introduce yourself to him <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I just want Renee Zellweger to play Mary Pickford now I just thought about it she looks exactly like her imagine ageing Mary Pickford I hope she gets like really good roles you need to write this, that panel you know? I, yeah I could do okay <laughs> for sure it'll have four cries in it <laughs> but we'll have a bit more Judy coming up next in Film Club as we talk about, as we've mentioned, A Star is Born. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This first remake of A Star Is Born, following the 1937 original, was a three-hour epic built around a bravura comeback performance from Judy Garland as Esther Blodgett, an aspiring singer plucked out of obscurity by the waning Hollywood star Norman Maine, played by James Mason. Nominated for six Oscars at the time, A Star Is Born is now rightly considered a peak of Golden Age Hollywood musicals. Let's have a listen to the original vintage trailer. Yes, A Star Is Born, and in its splendour and deep emotional fire... In its shining beauty and wonderful heart, a new era in motion picture achievement is also born. You'll see it in the richness and magnificence so lavishly poured into every scene. You'll feel it in the countless moments of deep human understanding. You'll hear it in the rousing tempo of its great music. And you'll know it when you experience the joy and jubilation of Judy Garland as the star. And you'll never forget James Mason 
as Norman Maine, clinging desperately to the only real love he'd ever known. I love listening to old trailers. <laughs> that was the trailer for A Star Is Born from 1954. So, Hannah, was this one of the films that you'd watch at school on a rainy afternoon? No, no, sadly not. I think I should have watched it a long time ago. <laughs> sadly, a blind spot of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's bad that I watched the uh, Bradley Cooper Star is Born before this one. But I think a lot of people my age are probably going to be the same way. Yeah. You know. The thing that was interested me was that this was a first watch for me as a, mm. a great blind spot. I'm not really a musicals person. I did see the Bradley Cooper Lady Gaga one at Venice last year. <laughs> I didn't realise this was a film that has lost sequences. Yeah. It was a massively was popular cut. regarded film that was cut on release. So yeah. when they try to restore it, yeah. there are sequences missing. So when we watch it now, the version I rented. <laughs> it's so funny. Ha- even half an hour in. 45 minutes in has sequences where it's just still production yeah. photographs. Yeah, like a PowerPoint show with audio over the top. Uh, I watch films like this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, and it is strange because you think this is in Cinemascope. There's mm-hmm. Cooper and yeah. Judy Garland. This should have been looked after. You know, this didn't get lost in the Fox Fire in 1930 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, this someone that's just callously chucked it out yeah, yeah. <laughs> it suddenly goes all avant-garde if, because the, the iTunes listing when I rented it didn't have any you know, message saying that it was a restored well, cut. Well, I only or knew because uh, David and Adam had told me because they said, "Just so you know, it's three hours." And I was like, <laughs> and then they said, and there are bits of it where there aren't <laughs> where they lost the film, so it's just it's like a sideshow with with the audio. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? What? This is what you're making me do? Mm-hmm. But I mean, obviously, it's a masterpiece, and yeah. you know that was that was fine. But yeah, I mean, it does give you an appreciation for the fact that they. Um, lost so much just through carelessness and mm-hmm. it, it really makes like film preservation even more important in this yeah. digital age we live in where things can be lost if a hard drive gets corrupted you yeah, know? Yeah. Pamela you said that looking down the list of Judy Garland films we would have gone in any direction really for this film club but we went first Star is Born where does that rank for you in your estimation it's a very indulgent and not to say <laughs> irritating film and yet every time I watch it not that I watch it all the time obviously I think this film has one of the greatest moments in film history in it uh-huh. and certainly my favourite Judy Garland moment which is the moment quite early on in the film when James Mason watches Judy Garland sing The Man That Got Away mm. this to me is an utterly sublime moment of cinema her voice the performance everything about it tells you the story of Judy Garland's life and gives you the most wonderful we often talk about this film about a fading star and an ingenue Mm -hmm. but Judy Garland's character in this film is not an ingenue she's been working as a Mm -hmm. trooper for quite some time she just says that no one's ever told her she sang well before which is hideous (laughs) but yeah The Man That Got Away has the most beautiful lyrics Ira Gershwin and it is a fantastic song performed beautifully and quietly in a moment that just can't be beat it can't be beat in this film Mm -hmm. unfortunately (laughs) It took a weight off my shoulders there when you said it's indulgent because this is such a long film. And it's fascinating to read in quotes from James Mason himself where he he thinks the film's unbalanced because Mm. narratively there's probably an hour of content here in this film. And then we have, (laughs) coming as somebody who isn't really a musical's head, endless 15-minute long musical montages of Judy Garland being incredible at what she does. And that's her saying, no, we need to put another number in. Quite often, the reason that it's long is because she wanted to put extra numbers in and the reason (laughs) that it took so long to film is that she was more of a Norman Maine than Mm. Esther Blodgett at the time that it was being made. This is her comeback film. She had long since left MGM and Sid Luft, aka Rufus Sewell, 
thought this would be a good idea for her. As we've mentioned, it's a remake of the 1930s A Star is Born with Janet Gaynor and Frederick Marsh, and there are sequences that are almost lifted. Mm. It's interesting to me, oh, there's so much to be said about this, obviously, but the makeover sequence when the Hollywood makeup artists get hold <laughs> of Esther Blodgett, oh gosh, yeah. they, they want to give her the same features that they wanted to give Janet Gaynor, so this, uh-huh. it's Marlene Dietrich eyebrows or something. Yeah. The eyebrows oh, are again. ridiculous, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah, yeah, the suggestion that it's as old as the hills there's so much Hollywood lore that they probably wanted to pack in mm. as well as doing justice to the story of James Mason's character the alcoholic the Bradley mm-hmm. Cooper it <laughs> is probably the finest star is born mm. despite all all its indulgences. I always want to be more irritated by it than I am. You know, I think that it's slightly ridiculous to have your comeback film playing The Rising Star. It's a little bit, oh, look at me, I'm still so young. And there's a point in this film, she was young, she was in her early 30s. There's a point in this film where you're looking at, you know, Francis Gum playing Judy Garland, playing Esther Blodgett, playing Vicky Lester mm-hmm. in a film which is an overnight success where she sings a song about how it's been a long road to stardom. And as a film historian, your mind starts to melt <laughs> a little bit. You know, it, it should be really artificial, but the truth is that when Judy Garland sings, it doesn't seem so artificial. And James Mason is obviously a very fine actor, much as I don't think he enjoyed making this film mm. very much. Uh, you know, and he was their fifteenth choice. Wasn't yeah, he? George Cukor was approached by Sidney Luft, and he wanted Cary Grant, and Cary Grant was like, "Absolutely not, no way, mm. <laughs> I'm not going there." George Cukor refused to direct the first A Star Is Born because it was too similar to his What Price yes. Hollywood. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Just you know, so much going on here, which is like really interesting and gives you a lot of kind of insight into the world of A Star Is Born which is you know still as we know a, a, a cornerstone it seems of like Hollywood yeah. I'd like to know what you two think about this for me now I've seen half of A Star Is Born you know, the versions of A Star <laughs> Is Born half. we've had it almost feels like there's a flaw in the very film where you have this title A Star Is Born and this it seems that mm. all, of, all the films at least the most recent three have been showcase performances for their female stars Yeah. however the narrative is hijacked by the male lead. It could be called it, A Star Dies. It could yeah. be the same plot as Judy. Yeah. So th- there's the scene in the film, which is also in the most recent version, or it's the Grammys, not the Oscars, where yeah. she is getting her Oscar, and yeah. then whichever main we have in the, yeah. in the film uh, just walks <laughs> on stage and steals the show or undercuts it. I and mean, isn't that it's... what the film is as well? What the story is that he, that she has this success, but then there's this, you know, anchor of a man that yeah. that steals the story at the end. I think if you've seen the Bradley Cooper version first, mm-hmm. you'll be so relieved when you get to that scene in the 1954 version, because mm-hmm. it doesn't actually haunt your nightmares for, <laughs> for days on end. Um, <laughs> people were trying to persuade David O'Selznick to make this film, to make the, the 30s one, the original one, and the thing that made him decide to make it was Irving Thalberg's funeral, where Irving Thalberg's widow, Norma Shearer, was mobbed by fans, and he mm. said, a Hollywood funeral looks wow. like a movie premiere, wow. and to me, it's almost like, you know, and, and What Price Hollywood is very much a kind of rise and fall story. And it is definitely the idea that we're doing the Wheel of Fortune thing. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that they're both stars, they both have to be stars, they both take up so mm. much space in any narrative. You're obviously meant to be seeing, you know, one weatherman come out and the other one go in and all this <laughs> kind of balance. But you're right. It's hard to care as much about Vicky Lester being quite successful as mm. it is about 
a man dying of alcoholism mm-hmm. or accidentally drowning but <laughs> not necessarily about caring just yeah. the dramatic weight is behind that the decline has so much more dramatic weight than the rise and also I think James Mason is so good in this He's film so good. and shows up how not very good Bradley Cooper was I think it was a coward's move on Cooper's part to change Norman Maine to Jackson Maine <laughs> should have kept it as Norman Maine Normie made Lady Gaga say Norman all the time that's what I wanted and now I'm upset I was robbed of that oh you've yeah yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to redub the, the 2018 one with me just going Norman all the time. Like, it's quite, there's a bit of a diss to the music industry in this film where she says, "Oh, I might be able to cut a record," and he said, "Well, that dream's far too small. You want to be in a movie." And it's interesting that the next two stars is Bornses. Yeah. Is that the correct? Stars is Bornses. The stars is Bornses. I like that. Uh, uh, in the rock industry instead, yeah. and also, well, in um, the other two versions, it's a musician who's like coming into the world of movies like rather yeah, than a um, bit, yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A, an actress who is an actress yeah obviously yeah Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson yeah are both musicians as well you know yeah. and I think Will Smith wanted to remake it as well yes he did yeah, yeah. with him as Jackson Maine I couldn't see Which would that. have been amazing. I couldn't, I couldn't they were watch have, Will go through that. I'm sure there was another version where it was going to be like gender swapped. Yeah. Oh, that would be interesting. That would be super interesting. I think that would be very interesting. I think people yeah. have often thought it should be gender swapped or it should be a more racially mixed thing because people's experiences of the entertainment yeah. industry can vary so much. And the fact that we always have, you know, essentially white people. Not that I want to keep the remake machine rolling on, but I would be fascinated to see like another interpretation of the core story which takes things like that into account with Instagram influencers instead. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> when my vlog okay, maybe is not taking that one. off and your Instagram is on the slide <laughs> oh god starring like Aquafina and then, <laughs> yeah, instead of being addicted to alcohol you'd be addicted to really expensive vitamins or something yeah <laughs> those gummy hair bear things <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> we're on to something here and I think one of the things that's problematic about the nature of the film is not just as you say that you've got this big death and you've got this unbalance but because it's about entertainment industry the people Mm -hmm. making it take it so terribly seriously there's (laughs) never going to be a lean fast version of this film there's Mm -hmm. always going to be you know Barbara Streisand singing that dreadful song Pamela just to wrap up if um, any of our listeners have seen Judy maybe they've seen A Star Is Born and maybe they've probably seen Wizard of Oz as well where (laughs) should they go next for their Judy Garland fix? The film that is most surprising is and always worth watching is Meet Me in St. Louis Mm -hmm. where she gets to be caring she sings a Christmas song and yet there's a terrifying Halloween sequence absolutely I really uh, I did think you'd go for that (laughs) well next time we'll have to do that Anyway, that was Film Club, A Star Is Born, wrapping up our films this week. Next week, we have Chris Morris coming back after 10 years since Four Lions with The Day Shall Come. We have Will Smith, not in A Star Is Born, although he could do this. Gemini Man is Will Smith, old Will Smith, young. Maybe that uh, maybe, could be the... Maybe you're going to have A Star Is Borning himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Star Is born to myself. Yes. <laughs> that, would be, that would be amazing. But that I'm is that. Gemini Man, angly, trying, cutting-edge technology, oh, making yeah. Will Smith... I'm excited to see that. ...young again. And for Film Club, we're going all the way back to Will Smith. I think his first film role in The Six Degrees of Separation. A film people tend to forget. They think he just came fully formed in that amazing year where he did mm. Independence Day, Bad Boys, etc. Yeah. That's a great wow. film. Men yeah. in Black. Actually, that's the second Will Smith Film Club in a while because we did Men in Black recently, didn't we? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. More well, Will Smith. Uh, yeah. just, I applaud your It's choices. just going to be changed to the, the Will Smith Film Club. So like. that is three Will Smiths next week. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know what you think about Six Degrees of Separation or any of the other films we've talked about at 
Truth and Movies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com via email or at the comments section at lwlives.com slash podcast. Hannah, Pamela, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great fun talking these films through with you. I'm Michael Eder, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry shampoo, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.